a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's Sunday, April 15th, 2007, and splashed across the front page of Central New Jersey's Home News Tribune reads, Did she or didn't she? An image of a woman looking tired and haggard rests on the top right of the article. The woman in the picture is Melanie McGuire, and she's on trial for the murder of her husband. The article presents two possibilities in the case of the 34-year-old widow. Did her husband, Bill McGuire, pack his bags, leave their apartment, and get murdered by unknown persons? Or did she kill him? with the 38 caliber weapon she'd purchased two days earlier. A few hours before the prosecution believes Melanie killed her husband, the couple had put down a mortgage for a four-bedroom colonial house in a scenic tree-lined neighborhood in Asbury, New Jersey. Melanie was a nurse at a fertility clinic, and Bill was an adjunct professor at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. They had two young, healthy boys. On the surface... It seems like a happy, normal couple moving forward in life. But the couple will never move into that picturesque house in Asbury, New Jersey. And under the surface, they certainly weren't happy. Just one week later, a fisherman finds what remains of Bill cut into pieces, stuffed in three suitcases, and tossed into the Chesapeake Bay. All that's left in Melanie's trial are the closing arguments and for the jury to make the final call. Did she or didn't she? And if she did, what drove this once happy couple to the brink? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, I'm Carrie Epema. And I'm Quinlan Posner. And this show is about the stories that we read on the front pages of newspapers and hear on the nightly news. But those are just snapshots. And what we want is more than that. We want to dive deeper and look at these moments that change somebody's life, uh, unfortunately, usually for the worse. But we do want to dissect what leads up to those headlines, to those moments on the news, and what happens after them. In this case today, and also the many upcoming cases that we're going to cover, we want to separate fact from fiction. We want to separate what the media presents and what actually happened. Yeah, so many of these stories seem to be about relationships that have gone wrong. And it just makes me really curious about that definition of good, evil, uh, guilty, innocent. And where is that line? How do we draw it? Who's going to cross it? Why are they going to cross it? What makes a person do that? And I think in these cases that we find, more often than not, is the line between guilty and innocent is actually 
dangerously thin or blurry. (laughs) The case we're looking at today has just been made into a lifetime movie, Suitcase Killer, The Melanie McGuire Story. And you can check it out on June 18th at 8 p.m. on Lifetime. You're not going to want to miss it. Carrie and I got to see it, and it's pretty sensational stuff. It's really good. And what I'm excited about sharing with you, our new listeners, is to tell all the facts that you can't put in a movie. So you're going to get some more information about the case here, which I'm really excited to share with y'all. Mm-hmm. There's always a who in every story. So what better place to start than with our star couple, Melanie and Bill McGuire? Quinn, buckle your seatbelt, Click, folks. click. Click, click. We're here. Okay. So we're going to wind back. We're going to go back in time. It is summer 1994. Imagine the hair. Imagine the clothes. Let me introduce you to our girl, Melanie. Melanie is in college. She's at Rutgers University. She's 21 years old. She's petite. She has brown hair. She's really cute. And she's got a boyfriend. Now, while she has a boyfriend, a friend of hers introduces her to this guy, Bill McGuire. Now, he's in the Navy. He's funny. He's 28. He's kind of like the perfect guy for her. She really falls for him instantly. He's a bit of a bad boy with a big mouth. I mean, just to put it into perspective, he was the class clown at the Naval Academy, which was down the road, which I actually love that the Naval Academy has a class clown. It feels like that's probably not something the Naval Academy would have. No, it it makes me a little nervous personally. But uh, (laughs) what also makes me nervous is that Bill is married when they meet uh, to his first wife, Marcy Polk. Well, he tells Melanie that they're separated, but it doesn't really matter to Melanie. Fidelity's not like her top priority either. She's slept with married men before. Uh, No judgment there, Melanie. But there was something about Bill that she really likes. She can't stop thinking about him. And lucky for her, Bill sort of feels the same way. Okay, so they start dating and they don't tell people that they were with before. But hey, She's 20. He's 28. They're pretty young. So they've started to date, and very soon after, Melanie gets a knock at the door of her apartment. She opens the door, expecting a salesperson. It is not. It is a woman around Bill's age, and she's standing there, and her face is serious. She introduces herself, as you guessed it, Marcy Polk, Bill's wife. Turns out, Marcy and Bill were not actually separated. Bill lied to the both of them. Yeah, she's probably hoping right about then that it was a Jehovah's Witness. Anything's better, right? And instead of Marcy doing like the shtick you'd expect where she's like, stay away from my husband. Instead, she real serious gives her a warning and says, he's going to make you think you're crazy. I'm telling you right now, that's what he's done to me. He's going to do it to you. I mean, how ominous is that? If I started a relationship with someone and they said they were separated and then their wife showed up and was not like, stay away from my husband, but be careful. Yeah, like I'm worried about you. Uh Uh-oh. That feels like a red flag, (laughs) just fully. So in Melanie's mind, though, this is not a red flag, right? So. She stays with Bill, and they've been together a year, and it's 1996. Um, At this point, they are in a monogamous relationship. They don't have extra boyfriends or wives or girlfriends that they know of, that we know of. 
things are good. They're not great. I think if the beginning of their relationship is any indication, they fight a lot. They argue over the little things and they're a year into their relationship. And also, Bill starts getting into some trouble with the law. Oh, right. Like, so there's this time that Bill's in the car with his friend Jim Carmichael. They're on a trip together. They're driving down the road. They don't have their seatbelts on, and they get pulled over by the police. And then Bill just starts, like, arguing with the cops, saying he he was driving with his seatbelt on. The officer's like, no, you weren't, gives him the ticket. And Bill looks at the ticket and then kind of gives his buddy a little wink and looks back at the cop and says, is that it? Is that the best you can do? You must be a rookie. A real cop would have written me more tickets than that. So, <laughs> like, ask, asking you shall receive, Bill. So the police officer's like, uh, okay, and writes him a bunch more tickets. Sometimes all toxic masculinity gets you is more tickets, Bill. That's actually insane. So as you guessed it, Bill's speeding ticket sort of rap sheet piles up. He gets a ton of speeding tickets. And he also, at this point, gets a mark on his record for forging a credit card slip. He just does not have a strong moral compass, it appears. In March of 1996, Bill gets into another run-in with the cops, but Melanie is with him this time. Now, he's speeding, he's driving, and he has an expired license, probably because of all the speeding tickets or something. The cop pulls him over, and because of all of the marks against his record, he's facing jail time for driving on an expired license. So the way that he's trying to get out of this is convince Melanie, his girlfriend, to take the fall for him. He wants her to go to court and tell the judge that she was the one driving. Now, you might ask yourself, don't they have a record of who's driving? Well, sometimes when you go and fight a speeding ticket, if the cop that pulled you over wasn't there, then you might get out of it on a technicality. So Or by lying. <laughs> or by lying. <laughs> but Bill is trying to do both, right? So he's postponing his trial so that the cop won't be there. In addition, have Melanie lying. Now, they say two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs are just two wrongs in this situation. And... Bill shows up to court with Melanie. The cop is there. She tries to lie, and boom, they're caught. Melanie did not want to go along with this at all, like you were saying. She's, she says, he made me perjure myself in open court as a human shield to save him from a traffic ticket. It backfires. Melanie gets caught in the lie. And so now, you're right, it's it's two wrongs just are two wrongs, because instead of one of them being in trouble, they're both going to be in trouble, facing jail time for lying under oath. Melanie gets a misdemeanor. Bill gets a felony. But this is so interesting to me. They would have both gotten felonies. But Melanie's lawyer says, listen, you got to make a statement. The only way you're getting out of this is saying that Bill coerced you into this and putting the blame on him. But you cannot tell Bill that that's what you're going to do. And Melanie's like, yeah, let's uh, throw Bill under the bus. He's kind of thrown me under the bus. I imagine she feels. So she goes ahead along with that plan. And you know when Bill finds out? Hmm. They're in court. And Melanie's lawyer tells Bill's lawyer, so just so you know, this is what we're up to. So I imagine that living with a person while that's all going down, it's got to be a tense household. Well, speaking of which, this happens, and again, another opportunity to leave. This feels like a big old red flag. However, 
1997, a year later, they're still together. And they move into a one-bedroom apartment in a townhouse in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Yeah, but their relationship, don't let it fool you that they move in together. The relationship mean, is not getting better. You mean this You mean this didn't make it stronger? You mean lying For in some court reason. together isn't what fortifies a relationship? No, and maybe they didn't have like the double vanity bathroom. They maybe had to share one. So things are just worse, <laughs> worse, 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 right? Melanie at this point does something a little off the wall to me, which is she starts taking fertility drugs and stops taking her birth control without communicating that she's doing so to Bill. And Bill wants them to wait for marriage. So she's taking these drugs to try to get pregnant, and she does get pregnant. When she tells Bill, he's not, like, thrilled. I think he probably wants to build this family with her. But the fact that she's trying to do it without him on board fully is sort of aggressive. Totally. he's kind of like, what are you doing? Then she miscarries. And I think it gives them this moment where he thinks they're going to be able to step back. And he's, you know, hey, I really want to wait till we're married. But she just goes on and does it again. So Bill, meanwhile, is not a model citizen in this relationship. He's definitely cheating on her. And she's finding out they're having fights. They're breaking up. It feels like the two of them are doing everything possible to end the relationship, and it's doing the opposite. It's just bringing them closer together, right? In 1997, though, Bill does the thing. They've been dating for a couple years. It's time. She wants to start a family, and I guess he wants to wait until they're married. So the only answer at that moment is to get married. So even with the infidelity, the lies, and the speeding tickets, she loves him. In sickness and in health, you know? In sickness and in health. And in very unhealthy relationship. They get married in 1999, and their son, Jack, is born in February of 2000. Yeah, and that same year, Bill gets a new job as a programmer and adjunct professor. And it's a really well-paid job. He's making some good money. It feels consistent and stable. But even though it's this stable thing, it actually puts a bunch of stress on their marriage because after he gets this job, he starts trying to pressure Melanie to quit her job at the fertility clinic and be a stay-at-home mom for Jack. She is not feeling that. Her parents live nearby. She has help with the baby. She wants to be able to keep working. She likes her job. So this is going to create a bunch of tension between them. Yeah. I mean, hot tip. If someone's trying to make you quit a job that you don't want to quit, don't quit that job. That's my advice. Um, Quit quit that person, maybe. Maybe quit that person. But Bill doesn't stop. He keeps trying to convince her to quit her job. And the stress of the situation is compounded by they have this new baby at home. And Jack, like a baby, cries. Imagine that. And they're in a one-bedroom apartment. So Bill, for some reason, is misplacing his anger at his son crying, and he's putting it on Melanie, trying to convince her that it's her fault for working and not staying home and not mothering him, which is just maddening to read. Hey, Bill, why don't you quit your job? That's all. Sounds like you got a lot of love to give a baby, Bill. Yeah. Not enough love for your wife, but the baby. Ugh, it just makes me, like, I I see red. You said he tells her that. I want to just note, he doesn't, like, tell her. He, like, yells at her. He rails. He lays into her. And he gets more and more angry. And Melanie just feels like there is rage coming from him. He is hitting stuff. He's breaking things. He's getting up in her face. 
And Melanie, you know, to her credit, she can hold her own. She's not afraid of him. She's not going to back down and go, okay, no problem. And somehow, even though she doesn't agree to stop working, their fights do have this pattern of de-escalation. And everything goes back to, okay, we're going to just walk away and have that be normal now. And then they'll circle back to it and it'll be just as ugly. It's 2002. They're three years into the marriage. Now, Melanie married him because he's funny, he's wild, he's impulsive, and wouldn't you know it, having kids and having a husband who is funny, wild, and impulsive and not kind and generous and giving isn't the thing she wants. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. so in addition to being a class clown, by the way, um, he was also voted most likely to gamble away his money at the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. Part of Bill's psychology into gambling is that he would sit at a casino table for 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and then he would leave. No matter where he was at, whether he was up or down, he would leave. And typically this would anger the casino managers, right? Because they're banking that you're spending a long time at the table so that if you are up, they will get your money back. And if you are down, you'll put more money down. And what's worse is she's 38 weeks pregnant with their second kid. She has Jack at home. And Bill would go out and gamble their money, and he wouldn't get home till 3 o'clock in the morning. And keep in mind, she's nursing. She's still working, right? Yeah, she's got to do dinner, do bedtime alone. And not. And then it's not just like he's out till 3. He's gambling their savings. He's, he's telling her, I really want to buy a house. I really want to buy a house. So they're saving money. And then every dollar they save, he goes and gambles it. I mean, I, I do want to give uh, Bill credit where credit's due. He was uh, thought to be a very good poker player, but it's poker. So for every time that he doubles their money, there's going to be two times that he loses all their money, right? Now, she's home. She's pissed. And let's be honest, Bill has a history of affairs. He cheats. We know this about him. Not only is she anxious about him gambling away their savings— She's also worried he's seeing another woman, right? I mean, yeah, that's where my mind would go. And by the way, I've never been pregnant, but Quinn, have you? You've been thirty-eight weeks pregnant. How does it feel? I've been there twice. It's no picnic. I don't want to be alone putting both <laughs> kids to bed, making dinner. Are you kidding me? I was on the couch by like six p.m. and done. So all this while, Melanie's preparing to take maternity leave, and she's got like a few things to do before she leaves her job. But she's really glad she's going to get a break. She deserves a break. She's stressed out. Her neck's killing her. Enter her co-worker, Dr. Bradley Miller. Ooh. He's not a McDreamy. No? He's not a Is McSteamy. he a McSteamy? No, no. I haven't figured it out. He's... Is he a McListeny? He is. That's exactly what he is. He's Does he her show confidant. up and listen? Yes. <laughs> and she needs that right now. They're friends at work. He's got his own family, his own wife and kids, but they chat from time to time. And on this particular day, she's like, I got to unload. My neck's telling me I just want to tell him where I'm coming from with this stuff. And she's in his office doing that. And he steps behind her, starts giving her little uh, neck rub. Ooh. Oh, so not only is he listening to her problems, is physically there, he then starts massaging the part of her body that is in pain. Wow. You guessed it. She is into it. And frankly, so is he. He's a neck guy. He's really into necks. (laughs) That's his deal. You know? And so, you know, the feelings, they come up. 
There's the open door, they shut it, and we all know what happens next. Oral. You bet. <laughs> did she or did he? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. We weren't there. We weren't there. We weren't there. We're but so like, glad we weren't there. They seem to get each other in a different way. Their humor might not be aligned, but he's there. Yeah, and so they become sort of, uh, we'll call it friends with benefits. So she's coming home from work in a better mood, and after the birth of her second son, she's like, okay, I got this thing called life. We're doing okay here. I feel good. Enter Bill. He comes home one day, and he has this grand idea. He says he wants to move the family seven hours away to Virginia Beach. Now, keep in mind, we mentioned this earlier, but she's close to her family. Her family helps take care of the kids when she's at work. So her whole support system is in New Jersey. And Bill's like, great idea. Let's go to Virginia Beach. It's been his dream town for a while, and he's always wanted to buy a house there. But Melanie says, absolutely not. Keep in mind, if she leaves, she leaves her job. And obviously, she cares about her job because she likes the work, but also her boyfriend is there. Um, (laughs) But also, I mean, let's be honest, Bill would have to quit his job. It just feels like moving the whole family just doesn't seem to make sense. I just want to flag, this happens in unhealthy relationships where your partner tries to move you away from your whole support system, everything that you know to sort of isolate you. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what was going on in his psychology, but to make someone leave their family and life feels like a really big ask. And Melanie is absolutely not doing it. She just has started also, like you said, to really love being at work with uh, Dr. Brad. Um, what did we say? McListeny? <laughs> she wants to be at work with, with him. Yeah. There are all these other people at work, too, that she's pals with, right, that she's worked with for years that she gossips with. And one of her coworkers says that at one point when she was uh, talking about her own relationship, Melanie said, oh, you think you have problems. Pull up a chair if you have a few hours. Okay, we don't love that. When we share problems, we have to share Everybody's got problems. We got to be good listeners. So Melanie's considering getting a divorce, but then she finds out that shit's expensive. And she starts to be like, ah, would getting a divorce be an escape from the situation I'm in? Or would it just present sort of a whole second set of problems? Right. It's around this time that Bill finds the picturesque four-bedroom colonial house in the super-cute tree-lined neighborhood in Asbury, New Jersey. Now, on paper, this is everything Melanie wants. It's in New Jersey. It's an upgrade of a house. They're putting money into the house so that he can't gamble it away. But at the same time, she's considering divorcing this person because she doesn't want to be in this marriage anymore. And so instead of having that bigger conversation that would stop the process in buying this house, she lets Bill go forward and check it out. But she is still having conversations with boyfriend, Dr. Brad. She's in his doctor's office after this. She's telling him she's really worried and that Bill has started acting super erratic and strange. He's hallucinating. He would stay up all night and sleep all day, and he's having paranoid episodes. There's a time that he has convinced himself that there is someone in their attic, and that he can see the attic light going on through the sheetrock in the ceiling, like that he can sense the light through the ceiling. And Melanie's 
freaking out. She's really wondering about his mental health. And, you know, here he is in this house and she's got the two kids and she's feeling like Bill has become unhinged. This guy could snap at any moment. And she's feeling really scared. Now, Dr. Brad hears this and he reassures her. He tells her that one day they'll be together and they'll start their own family, which is like probably feels really good to be Melanie and hear that someone who is there, who is present, who's nice, is giving her this attention that they'll one day end up together. It gives her hope for the future. And she starts thinking again about pursuing this divorce. And then she remembers when his first wife, Marcy Polk, filed for divorce, Bill went to her house and he threw rocks through her window. And we've seen the rage and anger that Bill has shown her in the past. And she realizes that not only is this divorce going to be an expensive one, but also it could be a dangerous one. It could be a divorce where she might not feel safe. And is it worth it? <sighs> and I think, as my therapist says, you know, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. And based on Bill's past behavior, her future is not looking good. Everything after that moment just seems to happen very quickly. It's late at night on April 18th, and into the early morning hours that night, somebody in Melanie and Bill's home, we don't know who, Googles the following searches. You ready for this? Yeah. Undetectable poisons, hmm. gun laws, how to commit murder, and I got two more for you, because it's about to kind of shift tempo here, how to kill your wife, and unfaithfulwife.net which .net really they didn't have a .com huh hmm. .edu would be very different .org unfaithful yeah, .org <laughs> that is wild and what's crazier is they share this computer is that true they share this computer it, it, we don't know who googles these on April 26, Melanie then drives an hour to Pennsylvania to John's gun and tackle room. And it's there that she buys a 38 caliber handgun and a box of wad cutter bullets. And that's the kind you would use to shoot targets at a gun range. And two days after that, the clinic where Melanie works processes a prescription for a sedative called chloral hydrate for one of their clients. The prescription for the sedative is allegedly signed by none other than Dr. Bradley Miller for another patient in his clinic, Tiffany Bain. Now, Dr. Miller will later claim that he did not sign this prescription. And Tiffany Bain will also say that she never even went to the Walgreens where the prescription was filled and picked up. The Walgreens in question is only a few minutes away from the daycare center where Melanie drops off her own kids. It's not looking good. And that same day, Melanie and Bill drive to their lawyer's office to discuss the mortgage, and suddenly, it's all happening. Melanie owns the four-bedroom house and an acre and a half of yard in Asbury, New Jersey. She cannot believe they got approved for this mortgage because they don't have this kind of money. But she didn't know that Bill has a private business partner that's loaning him a few grand for the deposit. She's going to find that out later. So everything is coming to a head. The deed is signed. Bill is so excited about this house. He's calling his friends and family and telling them the good news. 
Melanie calls Dr. Brad, and she tells him she is blindsided and shocked. Melanie, later that night, calls Dr. Miller again, and she says Bill's fallen asleep on the couch, and she's going to find a way to work things out. This all happens before 6.10. After 6.10, nobody but Melanie would hear from Bill McGuire again. The murder after the break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. May 4th, 2004. No one has heard from Bill for a week. In the meantime, Melanie has filed for a restraining order against Bill, and then she doubles down. She files for divorce. At this point, Bill's sister, Cindy, she's getting worried. This is her brother. He's been gone for a week. She's calling Melanie, asking her for any information she knows. And Melanie tells Cindy that she and Bill had a huge fight. And then Bill leaves, and he's probably in Atlantic City gambling away whatever money he has left. Cindy's super suspicious by this. It's been a week, and Melanie hasn't filed a missing persons report. And the only reason she finally does file a missing persons report is because Cindy, Bill's sister, presses her to do so. Then, on May 5th, a fisherman spots a Kenneth Cole suitcase floating in the Chesapeake Bay. It's six hours south of Melanie and Bill's house. And he pulls this thing out of the water. It's heavy. Oh, he unzips it. Oh, braver man than I. There's a trash bag inside, and inside the trash bag is a pair of human legs. Ugh. So you would expect that if you're fishing a dead body that's been floating around a bay for a while out of the water, that there'd be like a crazy, shocking smell coming out of the bag. Mm -hmm. But he says it seemed, ugh, I'll I'll use his words, fresh. Ugh. I know. So this is just the legs, yeah? Yeah, just the legs. 
it's not until a few days later that two other Kenneth Cole suitcases are found near Fisherman's Island, just off the coast of Virginia. And you guessed it, they contain parts of Bill McGuire. One contains a pelvis and arms, and the other a torso and a head with two bullet holes pierced through the skull. On the evening news in Virginia Beach, remember, that's where Bill wanted to spend the rest of his life, the police share a sketch of the victim. One of Bill's Navy friends, John Rice, and his wife, Sue, recognize the sketch. It's Bill McGuire. They do an autopsy, and it shows that he was shot with 38 caliber wad cutter bullets. Sound familiar? Bill's been missing for two weeks. Melanie is not looking very concerned. In fact, she actually files for divorce the day before the police come to her parents' house to break the news of finding Bill. And when they do tell her that her husband and the father of her two children is dead, she doesn't ask how. We know she wants out of the marriage. We know she hasn't been happy with him at the same time. But he's the father of her kids. And they've been together for nine years. And instead of asking how he died, she starts saying what she thinks happened to him. Which is after he left two weeks earlier, he goes to Atlantic City and that he's a big gambler. His car is missing, so maybe it's in Atlantic City. And she suggests that the mob might be involved. So instead of concern and questions as to why, she's offering a narrative that no one's asked for. Yeah, I don't think it sits well with the police. They suspect a motive right away there. Police find out that they had an unhappy marriage, and then they find out she's having an affair. It's pretty evident that she was fed up with his gambling and his abuse. So there's another story going on in their heads about what happened. They immediately suspect her. However, when they start doing an investigation into their home, Melanie is extremely cooperative. She hands over loads and loads of evidence. She lets them go wherever they want in the house. She gives them the laptop that we now know had those searches in Google for undetectable poisons, how to commit murder, and how to kill your wife and unfaithfulwife.net. So in her uh, being so cooperative, like you said, she lets the police check out their family storage unit. And while they're searching through there, they find a lockbox for a gun, but it's empty. They search purchase records and they figure out that Melanie bought a gun two days before the murder. It's that 38 caliber gun and wad cutter bullets, the same bullets, the same gun that match up with the autopsy. And the guy that sold Melanie the gun remembers her, remembers her face even, because he said to investigators on the stand during a televised court TV trial. Not many women come into the shop purchasing a handgun. And when she came in, well, she was well-dressed, noticed that. And then when I saw she was a registered nurse, all the years that I worked in the hospital, she was the first female nurse that bought a handgun that I remembered. The next piece of the puzzle is where's Bill's car? Well, the police find it exactly where Melanie tells them it is, Atlantic City. And in the glove compartment, they find two syringes and a bottle of pink liquid labeled chloral hydrate. And on the bottle, the doctor listed is Dr. Brad. So, and the police find out that this prescription was picked up 12 minutes after Melanie had dropped her kids off at daycare, 
from the Walgreens just down the street from that daycare. And they can't prove in the toxicology that Bill was drugged before he was killed. But when they put all these pieces together, it starts to seem really likely. I mean, do you remember the Google search, undetectable poisons? It's not looking good. It's not looking good. And those Kenneth Cole suitcases that they found Bill's body in washed up ashore, turns out they are three parts of a six-part luggage set. When police checked the McGuire home, they had the exact same Kenneth Cole luggage set, and you guessed it, three pieces of that luggage set were missing. Even with all this evidence that the police have, there's been no arrests, there's been no information to Melanie, and let's fast forward a year after his, after his body is discovered. On June 2nd, 2005, uh, Melanie's taking her two kids to school, and they step out of the car, they go up to the daycare door, she gives them a kiss, they go in, and she turns around, and the cops are right there waiting. She is arrested on the spot, and they read her her rights and bring her in. Ugh, I can't even imagine at her kid's school. I That's know. Wild. Brutal. The judge sets her bail at $750,000, which her parents pay immediately. And the very next day, her children are taken from her and they're put into protective custody. And they are given to Bill's sister, Cindy. Now it's her trial. Now it's her trial. They have the trial. It's in Middlesex, New Jersey. She's in the defendant's seat. And there's a jury of 12 that are clocking her. They're watching her every move while they listen to the prosecution set up this very damning case against her. In the opening argument, they make it seem just so obvious that she did it, and they have sort of a performative flair that they add because there's these court TV cameras airing this trial live to the world. If you go into the mall one day and the sky is overcast, and when you come out of the mall an hour later, you see that there's a person standing at the bus stop near the front entrance to the mall, and that person has wet clothing. When you put together the overcast sky when you went in, the puddle in the street as you step off the curb, and the person with wet clothes at the bus stop, rain is the only logical conclusion. So too with this case. The evidence they have against Melanie is a lot. And the story is salacious. So the prosecution sets up a pretty damning case. She bought this 38 caliber handgun and bullets. She then shot and killed her husband. She then cut him up with a handsaw, wraps the parts in black trash bags and blankets from her fertility clinic, her place of work, stuffs them in a suitcase. Or three suitcases, rather. Three Kenneth Cole suitcases, let's not forget. We're going to get sponsored by Kenneth Cole. The prosecution says that Melanie set up a really good cover story by calling Dr. McListens. Dr. Brad, folks, tells her she and Bill had this huge fight. He slapped her with a dryer sheet in her mouth, stormed out. She says she then moves his car to Atlantic City as a prank to get back at him. What prosecutors say actually happened is after Melanie kills Bill, she moves his car to Atlantic City to cover her tracks. It's at this point that Melanie has to clean up the crime scene. So she starts cleaning and cleaning to get rid of the blood from every nook and cranny of that house. Well, and a colleague of Melanie's notes in police interviews and on court TV that when she visited after the murder, the smell in the house was distinct. It was horrible. Strong smell. It it was bleach and cleanser and 
in like a morgue. It's then that she takes the suitcases full of Bill's body parts and she drives south through Delaware, Maryland, and ends up in Virginia. The easy pass in her car pings as she went through the tolls wherever she went. So we know she took this six hour. There is evidence that she took this six hour drive. Well, and there's also evidence that she called Easy Pass and said, can you please take these charges off my record, which is even worse. Yeah, it's the cover-up. It's even it's worse. It's always the cover-up. So she drives to Fisherman's Island in Virginia. She takes the three suitcases out. She dumps them into the Chesapeake Bay. And listen, Bill, he'd always wanted to live in Virginia Beach. And there's a part of you that wonders, did Melanie think of that? Was this on purpose that this would be his final resting place? And if so, it's either a very morbid way of saying, I love you, goodbye, or a very morbid way of saying, I hate you, screw you. Now, the prosecution makes a very strong case, and thousands of people are watching Court TV's live coverage of the trial. Pundits are talking about her every night. Strangers on the internet are blogging about her because blogs are a thing back in the early 2000s. Sure. I mean, when we hear it, it seems obvious. She did it. Purely, totally, obviously, maliciously, viciously. But there is more to the case that makes you wonder, as the headline in New Jersey Home News Tribune put it, Did she or didn't she? It goes without saying, even though we've sort of said it a few times, that Bill was not a great husband. He was also no stranger to breaking the law. He has these speeding tickets we're aware of, a felony for perjury. Remember the time that he asked Melanie to lie for him under oath? And he has forgery charges. So it does make you wonder, is Melanie guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Because Bill, he sort of strikes me as a guy that made a lot of enemies and was involved in some like nefarious sort of dealings, right? Could he have had another enemy that did this to him? And on top of that, she felt that the police had it out for her from the beginning, that they didn't give Bill's murder the full investigation that it deserved. And the police even heard this on wiretaps of Melanie. They got it in their head, for whatever reason, good, bad, or indifferent, that I did this, and they are going to do anything they can to force those pieces into the puzzle to make them fit. And that may sound paranoid, but it's not. Okay, now we have to talk about the gun. Okay, according to Melanie, around the time that they bought their house, Bill asked Melanie to get a gun for him. He said he would need that gun for self-protection when they moved to rural New Jersey. So he could not get the gun himself because, as you remember, he has a felony on his record. He has a felony for lying in court so he cannot get the weapon, so he convinces Melanie to go get the weapon. Yeah, this story makes sense to me because you go, yeah, this is a guy that asks for a lot of favors. Hey, lie for me in court. Hey, go buy me a gun. I mean, this is uh, their history a little bit. And then there's a friend of Bill's who said he would have testified under oath that Bill made this request of Melanie, but the judge wouldn't let him. And Melanie says this much to her friend on this police wiretap that aired on Court TV. You know what? There is nothing to say that he didn't leave with it that morning. He's the one who pushed me to get it. He couldn't get it himself. He's a convicted felon. So he did he know that you bought it? 
He was the reason I bought it. He was the one pushing for it. The 38 caliber handgun and wad cutter bullets Melanie bought was also a very common combination bought for home defense. And I think it's important to note that the ballistics could not prove that these bullets came out of that exact gun. You know how sometimes they have a marker on the bullet? They were never able to connect that this was the exact gun and bullet combination that killed Bill. And then there's another possible explanation for the suitcases, which seems pretty damning. She says that after she and Bill fought that night, he takes three suitcases with him when he storms out, which could explain how someone else got a hold of them and stuffs Bill's body in there. And then there's the chloral hydrate obtained by the forged signature of Dr. Brad, Melanie's lover. Now, Quinn mentioned before that Bill has a history of forgery. He was arrested for forging a credit card slip in the past. Also, a month before this, Dr. Brad's signature is found forged on another prescription that treated the same symptoms as chloral hydrate. Now, could Bill have gotten access to Dr. Brad's prescription pad and forged it? I mean, let's not forget that the police found several incriminating searches on McGuire's shared computer. I mean, yes, they were searches for undetectable poisons, but there was also searches for how to kill your wife and unfaithfulwife.net. Dot net. Let's never forget. The funny thing about chloral hydrate and medications like it is it's it's actually it's not just a sedative, it's a sleep medication and an anxiety reliever. And Bill was having all those sleep problems, remember? He thought there was someone spooky in the attic. He was awake. And it was found in his car. But we have to ask, who takes an anti-anxiety medication while driving? Not a great idea. Like a sedative. We find it in his car. And who has like a syringe and sedative in his car? That confuses me that it's in his car. Well, and then let's talk about the crime scene. As for the alleged crime scene itself, their home, police are doing luminol tests all over the place that would find blood even if... You use bleach to clean it up, and they find nothing. There's no blood in the drain. There's no bullet holes anywhere. This, to me, is the biggest red flag. If the prosecution is purporting that she killed him at their home, where is the forensic evidence? Even with a crazy bleach clean, Luminol still picks up the blood. There's... There's no bullet holes. It's so insane to me that there's no evidence that she shot him at their home. That is, it's wild to me. And then there's the wire. The police were constantly wiring Melanie. Oh my gosh, the amount of wire information they got her. You wonder what were they doing the year in between Bill dying and her arrest? They were busy wiretapping everything. They have so many wiretaps of her on the phone with Dr. Brad, you know, with the good hands and the neck. And he's cooperating with investigators because he knows in his heart that Melanie is innocent. But also, you know, the police scare you into doing some of these tactics. So he wears a wire and he calls Melanie and he asks her again and again and again if she killed Bill. She says, no, absolutely not. Her story never changes. She denies it the whole time. Well, for every explanation Melanie gives in trial, the prosecution has a counter that they come up with. And finally, here we are on April 23rd, 2007, 
Melanie McGuire's convicted of first-degree murder. She is sentenced to life in prison with a possibility for parole after 63 years. She would be 101. Since then, Melanie has tried to appeal her conviction twice. In the first appeal, she claims that the members of the jury were reading blogs about her giving them a bias against her. In her second appeal, she claimed that her lawyer was high on opioids while he represented her, and she did not get a fair trial. Now, both of these appeals were rejected, but Melanie still maintains her innocence, and she's never wavered. I do keep thinking back to that moment at the beginning when Bill's ex-wife came to the door that night and Mm -hmm. said to Melanie, he's going to make you think you're crazy. That's what he did to me. I mean... With hindsight, I think it's fair to say that Bill did drive Melanie crazy, but, I mean, crazy enough to kill? I mean, honestly, only Melanie knows that. I do think 99% of the time I feel like she did it, but that there's those couple things I cannot get past, and the luminol test and lack of bullet holes totally haunt me because— right. If she murdered Bill, where did she murder him? I, it couldn't have been in their home. I agree. And to me, I say she was filing for divorce. Right. So that seemed like she already had a plan of how to get out. And so is her motive truly just not wanting to spend the money on a divorce? There's got to be a cheap divorce.net out there. I mean, or she was worried about his rage. I mean, that was very well documented. That's what she said. She was worried about what he did to his ex-wife, throwing a rock through her window. She was worried about that. I mean, well, you go, okay, somebody's going to throw a rock through my window, so I'm going to chop up their body? Right. Well, at the end of the day, it's like, do we have enough evidence of his violent past that she could have claimed self-defense? We'll never know. But these are the facts as we present them, and we're so curious what you think. And I... And I just want to say, if this case is interesting to you, this whole case has been brought to life in a Lifetime movie premiering June 18th. So please check out The Suitcase Killer, The Melanie McGuire Story. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tana Robbins and Julie Magruder. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. We use many sources to tell today's story. Among them, we found the following sources particularly helpful. The 2008 book by John Glatt, To Have and to Kill, the 2020 docuseries episode, The Secret in the Suitcase, and the many, many hours of court TV of Melanie's trial. We highly recommend you check these out if you want to learn more. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.